Section 18 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 25, The Eastern Question, Part 2. That crisis came about during the later years of the reign of Emperor Nicholas. He saw its opening, but not the close of even its first volume. Nicholas was a man of remarkable character. He had many of the ways of an Asiatic despot. He had a strong ambition, a fierce and fitful temper, a daring but sometimes, too, a vacillating will. He had many magnanimous and noble qualities and moods of sweetness and gentleness. He reminded people sometimes of an Alexander the Great, sometimes of the Arabian Nights version of Harun al-Rashid. A certain excitability ran through the temperament of all his house, which in some of its members broke into actual madness, and in others prevailed no farther than to lead to wild outbreaks of temper, such as those that often convulsed the frame and distorted the character of a Charles the Bold or a Coeur de Lyon. We cannot date the ways and characters of Nicholas's family from the years of Peter the Great. We must, for tolerably obvious reasons, be content to deduce their origin from the reign of Catherine II. The extraordinary and almost unparalleled conditions of the early married life of that much-injured, much-injuring woman would easily account for any aberrations of intellect and will among her immediate descendants. Her son was a madman. There was madness or something very like it among the brothers of the Emperor Nicholas. The Emperor at one time was very popular in England. He had visited the Queen, and he had impressed everyone with his noble presence, his lofty stature, his singular personal beauty, his blended dignity and familiarity of manner. He talked as if he had no higher ambition than to be in friendly alliance with England. When he wished to convey his impression of the highest degree of personal loyalty and honor, he always spoke of the word of an English gentleman. There can indeed be little doubt that the emperor was sincerely anxious to keep on terms of cordial friendship with England, and what is more, had no idea until the very last that the way he was walking was one which England could not consent to tread. His brother and predecessor had been in close alliance with England. His own ideal hero was the Duke of Wellington. He had made up his mind that when the division of the spoils of Turkey came about, England and he could best consult for their own interests and the peace of the world by making the appropriation a matter of joint arrangement. We do not often in history find a great despot explaining in advance and in frank words a general policy like that which the Emperor Nicholas cherished with regard to Turkey. We are usually left to infer his schemes from his acts, not uncommonly we have to set his acts and the fair inferences from them against his own positive and repeated assurances. But in the case of the Emperor Nicholas, we are left in no such doubt. He told England exactly what he proposed to do. He told the story twice over. More than that, he consigned it to writing for our clearer understanding. When he visited England in 1844 for the second time, Nicholas had several conversations with the Duke of Wellington and with Lord Aberdeen, then Foreign Secretary, about Turkey and her prospects, 
and what would be likely to happen in the case of her dissolution, which he believed to be imminent. When he returned to Russia, he had a memorandum drawn up by Count Nesselroda, his secretary, embodying the views which, according to Nicholas's impressions, were entertained alike by him and by the British statesmen with whom he had been conversing. Mr. Kinglake says that he sent this document to England with the view of covering his retreat, having met with no encouragement from the English statesmen. Our idea of the matter is different. It may be taken for granted that the English statesmen did not give Nicholas any encouragement, or at least that they did not intend to do so, but it seems clear to us that he believed they had done so. The memorandum drawn up by Count Nesselroda is much more like a formal reminder or record of a general and oral engagement than a withdrawal from a proposal which was evidently not likely to be accepted. The memorandum set forth that Russia and England were alike penetrated by the conviction that it was for their common interest that the Ottoman Empire should maintain itself in its existing independence and extent of territory, and that they had an equal interest in averting all the dangers that might place its safety in jeopardy. With this object, the memorandum declared, the essential point was to suffer the port to live in repose without needlessly disturbing it by diplomatic bickering. Turkey, however, had a habit of constantly breaking her engagements, and the memorandum insisted strongly that while she kept up this practice, it was impossible for her integrity to be secure, and this practice of hers was indulged in because she believed she might do so with impunity, reckoning on the mutual jealousies of the cabinets, and thinking that if she failed in her engagements toward one of them, the rest would espouse her cause. As soon as the port shall perceive that it is not supported by the other cabinets, it will give way, and the differences which have arisen will be arranged in a conciliatory manner, without any conflict resulting from them. The memorandum spoke of the imperative necessity of Turkey being led to treat her Christian subjects with toleration and mildness. On such conditions, it was laid down that England and Russia must alike desire her preservation. But the document proceeded to say that nevertheless these states could not conceal from themselves the fact that the Ottoman Empire contained within itself many elements of dissolution and that unforeseen events might at any time hasten its fall. In the uncertainty which hovers over the future, a single fundamental idea seems to admit of a really practical application that is, that the danger which may result from a catastrophe in Turkey will be much diminished if, in the event of its occurring, Russia and England have come to an understanding as to the course to be taken by them in common. That understanding will be the more beneficial inasmuch as it will have the full assent of Austria, between whom and Russia there already exists an entire accord. This document was sent to London and kept in the archives of the Foreign Office. It was only produced and made public when, at a much later day, the Russian press began to insist that the English government had always been in possession of the views of Russia in regard to Turkey. It seems to us evident that the Emperor of Russia really believed that his views were shared by English statesmen. 
the mere fact that his memorandum was received and retained in the English Foreign Office might well of itself tend to make Nicholas assume that its principles were recognized by the English government as the basis of a common action, or at least a common understanding, between England and Russia. Nothing is more easy than to allow a fanatic or a man of one idea to suppose that those to whom he explains his views are convinced by him and in agreement with him. It is only necessary to listen and say nothing. Therefore it is to be regretted that the English statesman should have listened to Nicholas without saying something very distinct to show that they were not admitting or accepting any combination of purpose, or that they should have received his memorandum without some distinct disclaimer of their being in any way bound by its terms. Some of the statements in the memorandum were at the least sufficiently remarkable to have called for comment of some kind from the English statesman who received it. For example, the Emperor of Russia professed to have in his hands not alone the policy of Russia, but that of Austria as well. He spoke for Austria, and he stated that he understood himself to be speaking for England too. Accordingly, England, Austria, and Russia were, in his understanding, entering into a secret conspiracy among themselves for the disposal of the territory of a friendly power in the event of that power getting into difficulties. This might surely be thought by the English statesmen to bear an ominous and painful resemblance to the kind of pourparlers that were going on between Russia, Prussia, and Austria before the partition of Poland, and might well have seemed to call for a strong and unmistakable repudiation on the part of England. We could scarcely have been too emphatic or too precise in conveying to the Emperor of Russia our determination to have nothing to do with any such conspiracy. Time went on, and the Emperor thought he saw an occasion for still more clearly explaining his plans and for reviving the supposed understanding with England. Lord Aberdeen came into office as Prime Minister of this country, Lord Aberdeen who was Foreign Secretary when Nicholas was in England in 1844. On January 9th, 1853, before the re-elections which were consequent upon the new ministerial appointments had yet taken place, the Emperor met our Minister, Sir G. Hamilton Seymour, at a party given by the Archduchess Helen at her palace in St. Petersburg, and he drew him aside and began to talk with him in the most outspoken manner about the future of Turkey and the arrangements it might be necessary for England and Russia to make regarding it. The conversation was renewed again and again afterwards. Few conversations have had greater fame than these. One phrase which the emperor employed has passed into the familiar political language of the world. As long as there is memory of an Ottoman Empire in Europe, so long the Turkey of the days before the Crimean War will be called the sick man. We have on our hands, said the emperor, a sick man, a very sick man. It will be a great misfortune if one of these days he should slip away from us before the necessary arrangements have been made. The conversations all tended toward the one purpose. The emperor urged that England and Russia ought to make arrangements beforehand as to the inheritance of the Ottoman in Europe, before what he regarded as the approaching and inevitable day 
when the sick man must come to die. The emperor explained that he did not contemplate, nor would he allow a permanent occupation of Constantinople by Russia, nor, on the other hand, would he consent to see that city held by England or France or any other great power. He would not listen to any plans for the reconstruction of Greece in the form of a Byzantine empire, nor would he allow Turkey to be split up into little republics, asylums, as he said, for the Kosciuts and Mazzinis of Europe. It was not made very clear what the emperor wished to have done with Constantinople, if it was not to be Russian, nor Turkish, nor English, nor French, nor Greek, nor yet a little republic. But it was evident at all events that Nicholas had made up his mind as to what it was not to be. He thought that Serbia and Bulgaria might become independent states. That is to say, independent states such as he considered the Danubian principalities then to be, under my protection. If the reorganization of southeastern Europe made it seem necessary to England that she should take possession of Egypt, the emperor said he should offer no objection. He said the same thing of Candia, if England desired to have that island, he saw no objection. He did not ask for any formal treaty. He said, indeed, such arrangements as that are not generally consigned to formal treaties. He only wished for such an understanding as might be come to among gentlemen, and he was satisfied that if he had ten minutes' conversation with Lord Aberdeen, the thing could be easily settled. If only England and Russia could arrive at an understanding on the subject, he declared that it was a matter of indifference to him what other powers might think or say. He spoke of the several millions of Christians in Turkey, whose rights he was called upon to watch over, and he remarked, the remark is of significance, that the right of watching over them was secured to him by treaty. The emperor was evidently under the impression that the interests of England and of Russia were united in this proposed transaction. He had no idea of anything but the most perfect frankness so far as we were concerned. It clearly had not occurred to him to suspect that there could be anything dishonorable, anything England might recoil from, in the suggestion that the two powers ought to enter into a plot to divide the sick man's goods between them while the breath was yet in the sick man's body. It did not even occur to him that there could be anything dishonorable in entering into such a compact without the knowledge of any other of the great European powers. The emperor desired to act like a man of honor, but the idea of Western honor was as yet new to Russia, and it had not quite got possession of the mind of Nicholas. He was like the savage, who is ambitious of learning the ways of civilization, and who may be counted on to do whatever he knows to be in accordance with these ways, but who is constantly liable to make a mistake simply from not knowing how to apply them in each new emergency. The very consequences which came from Nicholas's confidential communications with our minister would of themselves testify to his sincerity and, in a certain sense, to his simplicity. But the English government never, after the disclosures of Sir Hamilton Seymour, put any faith in Nicholas. They regarded him as nothing better than a plotter. They did not probably even make allowance enough for the degree of religious or superstitious fervor which accompanied and qualified all his ambition and his craft. Human nature is so oddly blent 
that we ought not to be surprised if we find a very high degree of fanatical and sincere fervor in company with a crafty selfishness. The English government and most of the English people ever after looked on Nicholas as a determined plotter and plunderer who was not to be made an associate in any engagement. On the other hand, Nicholas was as much disappointed as an honest highwayman of the days of Captain McHeath might have been, who on making a handsome offer of a share in a new enterprise to a trusted and familiar pal, finds that the latter is taken with a fit of virtuous indignation and is hurrying off to Bow Street to tell the whole story. The English minister and the English government could only answer the emperor's overtures by saying that they did not think it quite usual to enter into arrangements for the spoliation of a friendly power, and that England had no desire to succeed to any of the possessions of Turkey. The emperor, doubtless, did not believe these assurances. He probably felt convinced that England had some game of her own in hand into which she did not find it convenient to admit him on terms of partnership. He must have felt bitterly annoyed at the thought that he had committed himself so far for nothing. The communications were, of course, understood to be strictly confidential, and Nicholas had no fear that they would be given to the public at that time. They were, in fact, not made publicly known for more than a year after. But Nicholas had the dissatisfaction of knowing that Her Majesty's ministers were now in possession of his designs. He had the additional discomfort of believing that while he had shown his hand to them, they had contrived to keep whatever designs of their own they were preparing a complete secret from him. One unfortunate admission, the significance of which will be seen hereafter, was made on the part of the English government during the correspondence caused by the conversation between the Emperor and Sir Hamilton Seymour. It was Lord John Russell who inadvertently, no doubt, made this admission. In his letter to Sir Hamilton Seymour on February 9, 1853, he wound up with the words, The more the Turkish government adopts the rules of impartial law and equal administration, the less will the emperor of Russia find it necessary to apply that exceptional protection which his imperial majesty has found so burdensome and inconvenient, though no doubt prescribed by duty and sanctioned by treaty. These conversations with Sir Hamilton Seymour formed but an episode in the history of the events that were then going on. It was an episode of great importance even to the immediate progress of the events, and it had much to do with the turn they took towards war, but there were great forces moving toward antagonism in the southeast of Europe that must in any case have come into collision. Russia, with her ambitions, her tendency to enlarge her frontier on all sides, and her natural sympathies of race and religion with the Christian and Slav populations under Turkish rule, must before long have come into active hostility with the port. Even at the present somewhat critical time, we are not under any necessity to persuade ourselves that Russia was actuated in the movements she made by merely selfish ambition and nothing else, that all the wrong was on her side of the quarrel and all the right upon ours. It may be conceded without any abrogation of patriotic English sentiment that in standing up for the population so closely affined to her in race and religion, Russia was acting very much as England would have acted under similar circumstances. 
if we can imagine a number of English and Christian populations under the sway of some Asiatic despot on the frontiers of our Indian Empire, we shall admit that it is likely the sentiments of all Englishmen in India would be extremely sensitive on their behalf, and that it would not be difficult to get us to believe that we were called upon to interfere for their protection. Certainly any one who should try to persuade us that after all these Englishmen were nearly as well off under the Asiatic and despotic rule as many other people, or as they deserved to be, would not have much chance of a patient hearing from us. The Russian emperor fell back a little after the failure of his efforts with Sir Hamilton Seymour, and for a while seemed to agree with the English government as to the necessity of not embarrassing Turkey by pressing too severely upon her. He was, no doubt, seriously disappointed when he found that England would not go with him, and his calculations were put out by the discovery. He therefore saw himself compelled to act with a certain moderation, while feeling his way to some other mode of attack. But the natural forces which were in operation did not depend on the will of any empire or government for their tendency. Nicholas would have had to move in any case. There is really no such thing in modern politics as a genuine autocrat. Nicholas of Russia could no more afford to overlook the evidences of popular and national feeling among his people than an English sovereign could. He was a despot by virtue of the national will which he embodied. The national will was in decided antagonism to the tendencies of the Ottoman power in Europe, and afterwards to the policy which the English government felt themselves compelled to adopt for the support of that power against the schemes of the Emperor of Russia. There had long been going on a dispute about the holy places in Palestine. The claims of the Greek church and those of the Latin Church were in antagonism there. The Emperor of Russia was the protector of the Greek Church. The kings of France had long had the Latin Church under their protection. France had never taken any views as to the necessity of maintaining the Ottoman power in Europe. On the contrary, as we have seen, the policy of England and that of France were so decidedly opposed at the time, when France favored the independence of Egypt, and England would not hear of it, that the two countries very nearly came to war. Nor did France really feel any very profound sympathy with the pretensions which the Latin monks were constantly making in regard to the holy places. There was unquestionably downright religious fanaticism on the part of Russia to back up the demands of the Greek Church, but we can hardly believe that opinion in France, or in the cabinets of French ministers, really concerned itself much about the Latin monks, except in so far as political purposes might be subserved by paying some attention to them. But it happened somewhat unfortunately that the French government began to be unusually active in pushing the Latin claims just then. The whole dispute on which the fortunes of Europe seemed for a while to depend was of a strangely medieval character. The holy places in which the Latins raised a claim were the great church in Bethlehem, the sanctuary of the Nativity, with the right to place a new star there, that which formerly ornamented it having been lost, the tomb of the Virgin, the stone of anointing, the seven arches of the Virgin in the church of the Holy Sepulchre. In the reign of that remarkably pious, truthful, and virtuous monarch, Francis I of France, 
A treaty was made with the Sultan by which France was acknowledged the protector of the holy places in Palestine and of the monks of the Latin Church who took on themselves the care of the sacred monuments and memorials. But the Greek Church afterwards obtained firmans from the Sultan. Each Sultan gave away privileges very much as it pleased him, and without taking much thought of the manner in which his firman might affect the treaties of his predecessors, and the Greeks claimed, on the strength of these concessions, that they had as good a right as the Latins to take care of the holy places. Disputes were always arising, and of course these were aggravated by the fact that France was supposed to be concerned in the protection of one set of disputants, and Russia in that of another. The French and the Russian governments did, in point of fact, interfere from time to time for the purpose of making good their claims. The claims at length came to be identified with the states which respectively protected them. An advantage of the smallest kind, gained by the Latins, was viewed as an insult to Russia. A concession to the Greeks was a snub to France. The subject of controversy seemed trivial and odd in itself but it had even in itself a profounder significance than many a question of diplomatic etiquette which has led great states to the verge of war or into war itself. Mr. Kinglake, whose brilliant history of the invasion of the Crimea is too often disfigured by passages of solemn and pompous monotony, has superfluously devoted several eloquent pages to prove that the sacredness of association attaching to some particular spot has its roots in the very soil of human nature. The custody of the holy places was in this instance a symbol of a religious inheritance to the monastic disputants and of political power to the diplomatists. It was France which first stirred the controversy in the time just before the Crimean War. That fact is beyond dispute. Lord John Russell had hardly come into office when he had to observe, in writing to Lord Cowley, our ambassador in Paris, that Her Majesty's government cannot avoid perceiving that the ambassador of France at Constantinople was the first to disturb the status quo in which the matter rested. Not, Lord Russell went on to say, that the disputes of the Latin and Greek churches were not very active, but without some political action on the part of France, those quarrels would never have troubled the relations of friendly powers. Lord John Russell also complained that the French ambassador was the first to speak of having recourse to force and to threaten the intervention of a French fleet. I regret to say, the dispatch continued, that this evil example has been partly followed by Russia. The French government were indeed unusually active at that time. The French ambassador, Monsieur de Lavelette, is said to have threatened that a French fleet would appear off Jaffa and even hinted at a French occupation of Jerusalem, when, as he significantly put it, we should have all the sanctuaries. One French army occupying Rome and another occupying Jerusalem would have left the world in no doubt as to the supremacy of France. The cause of all this energy is not far to seek. The prince-president had only just succeeded in procuring himself to be installed as emperor, and he was very anxious to distract the attention of the Frenchman from domestic politics to some showy and startling policy abroad. He was in quest of a policy of adventure. This controversy between the Church of the East and the Church of the West tempted him into activity, 
as one that seemed likely enough to give him an opportunity of displaying the power of France and of the new system without any very great danger or responsibility. Technically, therefore, we are entitled to lay the blame of disturbing the peace of Europe in the first instance on the emperor of the French. But while we must condemn the restless and self-interested spirit which thus set itself to stir up disturbance, we cannot help seeing that the quarrel must have come at some time, even if the plebiscite had never been invited, and a new emperor had never been placed upon the throne of France. The emperor of Russia had made up his mind that the time had come to divide the property of the sick man, and he was not likely to remain long without an opportunity of quarrelling with anyone who stood at the side of the sick man's bed and seemed to constitute himself a protector of the sick man's interests. End of section 18